0: Hi, you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astro's Theology class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today we're talking about some lessons I've learned about prayer from being a father. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Bonus Points. I'm recording this a few days after Father's Day, and of course, with another little one on the way, fatherhood is something that has been on my mind a lot lately. There are a million different directions I could take for an episode about fatherhood. There are many actual books about the subject, and there's no way I could sum it all up in a half hour or so. Instead, I'd like to narrow it down a bit and share some of the light bulbs that have come on for me when it comes to prayer. If I did a second episode on fatherhood, I think I would focus on what being a father has taught me about being a man, and how to live, how to love, how to sacrifice, but today we're focusing on what fatherhood has taught me about God's fatherhood, and especially our relationship with him in prayer. I don't think any of my ideas today are super original, but that's okay. Maybe these are all things you already know. And you'll say, duh, why did that take you so long to figure out? And to be fair, some of these are things that I've always known in my head, but that I now have a deeper appreciation for. Like, I always had the intellectual or the conceptual understanding, but being a father has made them move down that long road from head to heart. Also, I don't want to imply... I don't want to imply that I'm an expert on either fatherhood or prayer. I am most certainly an amateur in both of those areas. But, you know, the word amateur comes from the word for lover, and I'm okay with that, Um, because I may be inexperienced with both fatherhood and prayer, but I definitely love them. Anyway, those are the caveats that I offer with today's episode. Whether these ideas are new to you or not, Hopefully, they give you a chance to think about your own prayer life. As always, before we dive in, I'd like to encourage you to follow Bonus Points wherever you are listening so that you never miss an episode. Your app may call it subscribing, but I think for the most part, those are the same thing. You can also check out Bonus Points Podcast for lots of information about the show and about each episode. On the site, you'll also have a chance to submit your ideas for future episodes as well as your questions for our next question and ask the episode. So when I was planning out this episode, I started by just making a list of lessons that I've learned about prayer because of being a dad or just like like a bunch of nuggets or light bulbs um, from the past few years. The next question was how to arrange them to give this episode an order or a flow. Um, The first arrangement I tried was to put them in chronological order You know, some of these lessons I learned when my son was still very young, uh, while others have become more prominent now that he is firmly in toddler territory. But I gave up on that because it, it felt kind of forced. You know, many of these lessons I have relearned over and over again, or I learned them once when my son was an infant and I'm learning it in a new way now. And so instead what I've done is I've tried to keep similar lessons close to each other, especially if one flows directly into the next. Um, There's still sort of a chronological order to it, but it's not super strict. So the first few are, we can think of those as like the little nuggets. They're they're not super related to each other. They're more miscellaneous. But then the two major lessons, and they're going to be kind of a few ideas within each one. The first one's going to be about God's providence and... And suffering, and just that, that question of how we approach difficulty. And the second one is going to be about contemplative prayer, that deeper form of prayer that goes beyond words and mental concepts. So, within each of those, there will be a few key highlights, but th- those are kind of the three parts of today's episode a few lessons that are, for lack of a better term, miscellaneous, and then some lessons about providence and suffering, and some lessons about contemplative prayer. So, the first lesson that I learned about prayer, and I do mean this one I learned pretty quick, is that prayer routines have to be stable yet flexible. Here's what I mean by that there has to be stability, right? If there's no stability, there's no growth. If you have a tree that you transplant every day, it's never going to bear fruit. And it's the same with prayer. If you don't have some consistency, you're never going to experience that growth, and it's going to be very hard to bear fruit spiritually. You're not going to get very far if your approach to prayer is, I'll pray whenever I have a chance, but there's no regular routine. At the same time, there has to be some flexibility because unless you live in a monastery, your day probably isn't perfectly regimented. There are going to be things beyond your control, and so you're gonna have to work with those variables. This was especially true when my son was first born. So to put it in perspective here, he was born exactly one week into my second time doing Exodus 90. If you're not familiar with Exodus 90, I talked about my third experience doing it last year back in episode 15. Anyway, one of the disciplines with Exodus 90 is that you will do a holy hour every day, preferably in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Part of that hour of prayer will also be 20 minutes of silent or contemplative prayer. Now, my first time doing Exodus 90 was the year before my son was born, which also happened to be during quarantine. No kid, stuck at home all day, no TV or video games. Heck yeah, I can do a holy hour with no problem. Except for the times that I had to be on Zoom to teach, I could do my holy hour at any time I wanted. Then all of a sudden, in my second Exodus 90, I'm a week into it and now I have a newborn. I know it's a trope or a meme that parents, especially parents of a newborn, are just exhausted all the time. Let me tell you, that is 100% true. Our son was not a good sleeper, and his reflux meant that I had to hold him upright for at least half an hour every time he ate. And for those who don't know, newborns eat a lot, including several times throughout the night. So before having a kid, my routine was to wake up super early to start the day with prayer. But now I found found myself up all night, and that was no longer physically possible. I had to learn to adjust while maintaining that consistency. Because it wouldn't be good to just give up on prayer, right? Of course not. That wouldn't be good for me or my family. But a new season of life meant that I had to build new routines. At that time, it meant breaking up that holy hour a bit more throughout the day. I might not be able to pray for 60 minutes first thing in the morning, but I could pray for 15 or 20, and then I could do the same thing over lunch or in the afternoon or in the evening. So you see the balance there? I was consistent in making time for prayer, and even in a lot of the ways I spent that prayer time, but I also had to be flexible in how I made that time. So that's a key to the prayer life. You have to be consistent in making time for prayer, and you have to have routines, but you also need to be flexible enough to respond to what God is asking of you in any particular season. Even now that my son is a bit older, he's not keeping me up throughout the night as much, so I've been able to start getting up early again to get my prayer time in before the whole house wakes up. But there are days when he wakes up early, and so my time gets cut short, or maybe I sleep in and I miss that alarm. But even that reminds me of, you know, I think it was St. Francis who told his friars that if they were in the middle of prayer and somebody came to the door looking for alms, they were to stop their prayers and greet them. The way he phrased it was that it would not be right if, for the sake of paying attention to Christ in prayer... They neglected Christ in the person on their doorstep. And so it's the same here. It wouldn't be right for me to neglect Christ in my son uh, in order to pay attention to Christ in prayer. And so there has to be both that, that stability and that flexibility. Another lightning bolt hit me one day as I was cleaning up the house in the evening. You know, I was washing dishes or putting away toys or something. And I realized that my son neither knows nor cares that I'm doing this for him. I'm sure one day he'll look back with gratitude for, you know, all the things that his parents did for him growing up. But in that moment, as I was picking up those toys or, you know, washing his sippy cup for the millionth time, whatever, in that moment, he had no clue, right? He neither knew nor cared. I was doing these things for him, even these essential things that must happen. And yet he was totally unaware. And then I thought of how often that is what God does for us. You know, I mean, hopefully you take time to recognize God's blessings and thank him. If not, do that, right? Make that a cornerstone. But even for somebody who makes that effort to recognize God's blessings, to be thankful, imagine how many of those blessings still go unnoticed. Even the fact that you exist right now is because God willed to create you, and at every moment, he wills to hold you in existence. If God forgot about you for one second, you would just, poof, disappear. If there are so many things that I do for my son that he doesn't notice, I know that there are infinitely more blessings that God gives me every single day. Now, as my son has grown up, he has started to notice some of the tasks that keep the house running, And he wants to be involved. Um, In fact, as I was getting my notes together for this part of the episode a few days ago, my son wanted me to make him an egg. But he didn't just want an egg. He wanted to help me cook it. He dragged over this wooden step stool that he has, and he helped me crack the egg, beat it, cook it. And obviously, that made it take so much longer. Like, seriously, it probably tripled the total time required to make this egg. It's the same thing that happens when he helps wash the dishes, except then it takes so long because I also have to clean up all the water from the floor after. Now, of course, having a toddler help you with pretty much any task is going to make it go slower. And yet, I wanted him to help me. Yes, it slows me down and it's less efficient, and sometimes it even makes more work. But I want him to be involved. Why is that? Well the most important reason is because I enjoy spending time with him. It is more valuable to me that I let him share this time, this task, whatever it is, than it is to cook an egg as quickly as possible. Not only that, but these are small teaching opportunities. When my son was barely a year old, he could pretty much brew a cup of coffee on his own using the Keurig. He needed help reaching things, but he didn't need you to tell him what to do. He knew You get a mug, you get a K-cup, you hit the middle button when it turns blue. I never sat him down and explained how to do it. I just let him be a part of the process and I let him learn. So what does this have to do with prayer? Well, think about when we pray for others. Have you ever thought about why we do that? I mean, Scripture is clear that we ought to, right? So maybe we don't even think about it. Scripture says, pray for others, so we do. But why? Why do we pray for other people's needs? After all, God already knows them, right? He knows their needs better than you or I ever could. We're not telling him something new. And it's not like that God changes his mind, right? He's eternal. He's outside of time. So you can't persuade God or convince him or bargain with him or threaten him. So God wants us to tell him our needs and the needs of others even though he already knows them and he's he already has his will so why why does he want us to do this it's the same reason that i want my son to help me make him an egg god could do anything but he chooses to do things in a certain way and when we look at the things he has chosen to do we see some patterns emerge even just look at scripture right look at all the all the things that god has done notice how often He goes through creation. You know, we could call this pattern mediation. God always seems to go through his creation when he interacts with it. So, I mean, really, think about it this way. God could have saved us just by zapping us all with forgiveness from afar. But he doesn't. Instead, he enters into creation. He becomes man. He lives with us. He dies like us. And then... How does he carry that salvation to me here and now? He doesn't just want me to have this invisible intellectual assent, like this this kind of um, spiritual agreement. He doesn't just want me to declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior, even though, of course, he is. He wants me to be baptized with water, anointed with oil, fed with his own flesh and blood that looks like bread and wine. God goes through creation to reach us, right? God went through creation to reach you, and he wants to go through you to reach others. This is why he tells us to preach the gospel to all nations, even though he could have just beamed knowledge of the gospel directly into everyone's heads. This is why his word comes to us through human authors of scripture, through the translators and the editors and the publishers and even through the person who gives you that Bible or who reads it to you at Mass. Our prayers of petition and intercession are one way that God works through us and brings us into the process. He doesn't just want to heal your family member or comfort your friend or whatever it is. He wants you to ask. He wants you to be part of the process. And going back to fatherhood, It's the same reason why I love when my son asks for a cookie or bluey or anything. I already knew it's what he wanted, but there's something valuable about him asking and me responding. Okay, the next like five lessons are all pretty closely related. Um, Like I said a minute ago, they all have to do with providence and suffering. And before we get too deep into that, I know that this is a big topic. Maybe you are in the midst of suffering right now, and those wounds are fresh, and so they're a little bit sensitive, but all of these lessons ultimately come back to the love of God, so I'd I'd invite you to keep that in mind if that's where you're at right now as you're listening to this. Fatherhood has given me a deeper understanding of what it means to say that God loves us even though there is suffering. So let's back up a bit. Back when I was in college, somebody recommended the book Abandonment to Divine Providence, which is a spiritual classic. The basic thesis of the book was that no matter what God provides, he doesn't always provide in the way we expect, but the best thing we can possibly do is unceasingly trust in his providence. Here's the logic. God knows what is best, right? And God desires our good, right? And God is all-powerful, right? So if all of these things are true, then everything is either actively desired by God, or at least permitted by God, but with my ultimate good in mind. Right there are two important lessons that really sunk in once I became a father. What we think we need, and what we actually need, are not always the same thing. And sometimes God allows suffering, but he always brings good out of it. Now that my son is old enough to ask for things, sometimes he asks for really good things, like that egg that he wanted. Awesome. But other times, he asks for things that are not good for him. Sometimes he asks for things that are good, but just not at the right time. Like when he wants to watch Bluey when it's time to leave for church, or he wants to eat a marshmallow peep after he's already had several marshmallow peeps. Those are good things, but just not at the right time. And we all know that a good thing at the wrong time is not really a good thing. Other times, he asks for things that are good, but they're not good for him. Or not the way he wants to use it. Like when he wants to play with the bottles under the sink. Those are good things, right? But not for a toddler. (laughs) I don't always know what his plan is with them, but I'm pretty sure he's not going to clean the house. He doesn't see that, though. He cannot comprehend why a loving father would say no to what in his mind are perfectly reasonable requests. In his mind, my refusal is based on malice and hatred and so he responds accordingly. His knowledge is incomplete and he doesn't know what I know about what will make him happy. He thinks he knows what will make him happy, but that's only because he doesn't understand toxic compounds as they apply to the bottles under the sink. You see what I'm getting at? Sometimes there are things that we think we need, and when God seems to say no, we conclude that he must hate us. Other times, God allows us to undergo suffering, maybe even intense suffering. I think of um, one time when my son was little, he got sick a couple times right in a row that landed him in the ER, and every single time he screamed like he was being tortured. Every time a doctor or a nurse came near him or had to take his temperature or anything, he would shriek. And it was heartbreaking because I knew that I could have prevented that suffering. I could have kept him home. I could have just let him be sick. But I allowed that suffering because it ultimately led to him feeling better, right? It's never that I wanted him to suffer. I didn't take him to the ER because I knew it was really going to ruin his day. I was in pieces watching him cry like that, but I allowed it because I knew that good would be brought out of it. It's the same with us, right? We know up here in our heads that God doesn't want us to suffer, but when he allows us to suffer for one reason or another, he always brings good out of it. When he tells us no, it's only because he knows what will make us happy better than we do. Even before I learned these lessons, though, I had a realization about providence. In fact, this one happened when my son was first born. You know, maybe we were even, we were still in the hospital when this dawned on me. I realized how deeply he relied on me and my wife. You know, he needed us for everything. If we just set him down and walk away, he would die. Like that's, if we just set him on the floor, said farewell, good luck, he would have no chance. He depended on us for absolutely every need and desire. And then I thought of those words of Jesus who says, without me, you can do nothing. He also talks about the lilies of the field. It's one of my favorite passages from the gospel. And um, I know at this point, You might even roll your eyes when I I talk about my favorite things in scripture because I have so many. But this one really is, this is near the top. Jesus talks about how if God clothes the lilies of the field so well, and if he provides the birds with their home, you know, if he does this for birds and flowers, what's he going to do for you? And he knows what you need. And I hope that I can be as trusting in God as my son is in me. You know, my daughter, who's not even born yet at the time I'm recording this, same story, right? She is entirely dependent on my wife for everything right now. And even now, my son is young enough that he still has that total trust. You know, I never see him pacing around the house with a checkbook or looking in the fridge to make sure there's enough food. He just has this total trust that we will provide for him. And I think we could all learn a lot from that. If we had half the trust in God that my son has in me and my wife, we would all be in a much better spot spiritually. This next one um, feels like cheating a little bit because it happened before my son was born. This was a moment of inspiration that happened when I was holding one of my nieces when she was a newborn. I remember I was sitting in like a big armchair or recliner and she'd been laying on my chest, napping. And at one point, She woke up and started to cry because she didn't think she was being held anymore. She was laying on my chest, literally supported by me at every moment. But in that moment, she thought that she'd been abandoned. And how often do we do this with God too? You know, sometimes we feel like he's distant or that he's abandoned us. But in reality, he's closer to us than we are to ourselves. And it's when I'm in those sorts of moments that I think about this next thing. I love the toddler stage because there's so much more engagement that I can have than I could when he was a newborn. You know, when when my son was really little, he was pretty passive. I would take him to the store, but he had no idea what we were doing. He didn't have any preferences about whether we went to the store or not. Now that he's older, he's able to express his desires a little bit more. He's also able to understand the concept of the future, Just a little bit, but not a lot. So the other morning, he wanted to go to the playground. And I said, sure thing, we can go to the playground. But first, you need to get a diaper and put on some clothes. And I need to get dressed and make some coffee. Then we can go to the playground. Wouldn't you know it, in his mind, that meant, okay, run to the door now. When he saw me doing something that wasn't also running to the door, he lost his mind. He couldn't understand how me walking toward the bathroom could be part of the plan if we were supposed to be going to the playground. And that's the same with us sometimes. You know, God sees the whole picture, right? But we only see such a small sliver. It is usually impossible for us to understand, you know, how does this all fit together? How can this be part of the plan? There are two analogies for this that I really love. The first was from Padre Pio, who used to tell a story about a boy sitting on the floor watching his mom sew. But because he could only see the back of the fabric, he said, Wow, mom, that looks terrible. Then his mom picked him up and put him on her lap so that he could see the front of the fabric. And then everything made sense. Or there's somebody else, I think it was Bishop Barron, who compares it to somebody walking through the park and they find a single page from the Lord of the Rings books. And on that one page... They read about the struggle of Frodo and Sam on their way through Mordor. And based on that, they conclude that The Lord of the Rings is a terrible series that is dark and depressing all the time. You know, in both of these analogies, there is this idea that we don't see the whole picture. One day, we will see things as they are, but right now we see only that thread, only a page. We don't understand that putting on our shoes isn't opposed to going to the playground, but it's part of the process. All right. Um, These last few are about what we would call contemplative prayer. And I debated breaking this episode into two, but I don't have nearly as much to say about contemplative prayer because, in so many ways, it does go beyond words. Um, Some of you may know this, and maybe I've talked about it on previous episodes, but broadly speaking, we can talk about three kinds of prayer vocal, mental, and contemplative. Vocal prayer is, you know, prayer that uses words. Mental prayer uses our mind, especially our intellect and our imagination. Contemplative prayer could be best defined as a wordless gaze of love, or this wordless presence. Father Mike Schmitz sums it up in two phrases. He says the contemplative prayer is, has two parts, behold and beheld. We behold God. We simply give him our presence and our attention, and we recognize his presence and attention toward us. And then we allow ourselves to be held. We allow ourselves to be loved. We rest in that embrace that God is always extending to us. And I apologize if that sounds vague or fluffy. Um, It's not meant to, but contemplative prayer goes beyond words and beyond concepts to just have that loving presence. It's like if you have a really close friend or, or somebody you're very close with, sometimes you can just be present to each other without words. That's what contemplative prayer is like. I've known that concept in my head for a while, but it became real. It it made that journey from the head to the heart when my son was first born. Of course, at that time, he couldn't talk. He couldn't express himself with anything other than a cry. He couldn't understand what I was saying, that was for sure. And yet, there was a connection that was formed. Because I would hold him, and he would just look up at me, and I would look down at him. And in that eye contact, there was peace and there was a real exchange and it was entirely wordless. Usually it was entirely silent and I couldn't make him understand how much I loved him, no matter how much I said or how I said it, but I could hold him and he could be held. We could look at each other and that formed a deeper connection than I could have formed with all the words in the world. That is what contemplative prayer is like as well. We go to sit with God, and we just bring our attention to him. We know that he's already paying attention to us, right? So it's not about trying to get God's attention, because you already have it. But when we pray, we give him our attention, and we make ourselves present to him. And that awareness doesn't need words or images. It's just that mutual presence. And that's why I love Eucharistic adoration, when the Eucharist is exposed in that monstrance, Because then there's a very real sense of beholding God. I can look at him, and I know that he's looking at me. Even now that my son is old enough to use words and express himself a little better, and he understands me when I talk a bit more, there's still room for those wordless exchanges. So for those who don't know, many toddlers play this way. If you put him in a room full of toys, he may try to get you to play with them, or he may go and play on his own independently. But when he's playing independently, he still comes over to me every few minutes just to check in. He doesn't always say anything or need anything, but he just comes over to be held to get a hug. We can do that with God as well. Even in the midst of whatever we're doing throughout the day, we can take those pauses just to return our awareness to God's presence, to realize that he sees us and he hears us and he loves us even when we're not paying attention to him. And in that moment, we can just receive that love. We can behold and be held. This is something similar, or this is, yeah, this is similar to something I learned even a few years before John was born, but it's taken a new significance now. You know, I have a friend whose wife was studying psychology, specifically family development, and we were talking about the heartbeat of fetuses in the womb uh, is responsive to their mother's heartbeat. You know, it's not exactly the same because uh, fetal heartbeat is a lot faster than like us here outside the womb. But there are correlations, you know, when the mom's heart would speed up or slow down when she was calm or anxious. And even outside the womb, there's this idea of co-regulation. This is the idea that the way we regulate or moderate our emotions can be affected by somebody else's emotions or how they're regulating theirs. You've probably experienced this even if you didn't know there was a word for it. You know, maybe you've had that friend who is really high strung and you find yourself getting stressed out just from being around them. Or on the other hand, maybe you have that friend who is very calm and even keeled and when you're anxious, just being around them has that calming effect on you. Well, this is a big idea with little kids that they co-regulate And so you can start to teach kids emotional intelligence or healthy ways of dealing with emotions if you're very deliberate about how you respond to your emotions around them. Anyway, what does that have to do with prayer? Well, first of all, can you imagine the co-regulation there must have been between Mary and Jesus? I mean, it is incredible. Not only that, but this is what happens with us when we place ourselves in God's presence. If we think of a baby's heart being affected by his mother's heart, we can also think about the way our hearts are affected by proximity to the sacred heart of Jesus and to the immaculate heart of Mary. You know, so often we try to overcomplicate prayer. Really, contemplative prayer is just that closeness. We place our hearts next to theirs, and we let our hearts start to beat like theirs, to be inflamed with love like theirs. The last thing I have to say is just a deeper awareness of how much God delights in us. You know, I love when my son does something well. I love it when he sets a goal and accomplishes it or or does something pleasing or whatever. But even when he doesn't, even when he's just kind of doing his thing, I delight in him. I just love watching him, even when he's not doing anything that interesting. And it's the same with us. You know, you don't have to try to impress God, though, of course, he wants to see you do well. But no matter what, God delights in you. He loves you. He cherishes you. And he is just so dang enamored with you. And that's the note I want to leave you on today. You know, I don't really have any additional resources to offer this time around, since this episode was mostly just light bulbs that have come on over the past few years I'm not even going to give another plug to subscribe or share the episode, though you should. All I'll say is thank you for listening and that I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining us once again as we continue every episode to put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.